believe it or not, summer's coming to a quick close here. Uh, feels like it's flown right by, but we're coming up on the fall ministry season, and we have Awana, our children's Wednesday night program, starting up here on August 29th. So that's for preschoolers through fifth grade, and then we also have programs for ministries for middle school and high schoolers. Um, but I'm up here kind of representing Awana this morning, and we could use a few more helpers. Um, these leaders, we can, we, we're going to offer a, an orientation night the 22nd, Wednesday the 22nd. So that's a week before Awana starts. We're just going to meet here for an hour, like at 6.30, and uh, come out and we'll tell you how the schedule works, how discipline works, how, you know, what the goal and vision and, uh, of this ministry is, which is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and have kids come to the saving knowledge uh, of their Lord and grow in their faith. And so a few of us went to uh, a leader training night last week, and so we're excited about this Awana ministry year coming up here. Um, pray for that. You know, this could really be a fruitful time for our church. Um, in the past, we've seen about half of the kids coming to Awana, maybe up to half, not regular attenders at the church here. They're coming from the outside. People here are bringing kids, so keep that in mind, too. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to bring some kids to Awana on Wednesday nights. There's a meal at 5.30, and then Awana starts right at 6.15 and goes till about 7.30, 7.45. Um, so, and then also a reminder this morning that is a, we're doing our quarterly missions collection, so... Uh, for the missionaries we regularly support, um, including those we've seen in the last month here. Um, please give generously to help support their ministries. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. I, I just want to read uh, a verse. Psalm 34, 18. It says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And uh, just thinking about that, that, that God is near to us um, when we're going through dark times, when we're going through difficulties and hard times. And I know there are heavy hearts uh, within our family today. You know, we said goodbye to Dorothy um, this week. And, um, you know, it's, it's so good, though, to come together as a family uh, to be reminded of who our hope is and where our hope is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day which you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I ask that you would teach us from your word that we would continue to worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would gain a greater appreciation and a realistic appreciation of who you are that would impact our lives for your glory and for the gain of your kingdom we pray it in the name of our precious Savior Jesus Christ Amen As one of the general education requirements for my college education at the University of Northern Iowa I took a class called Exploring Music For some people it was unaffectionately named Exploring Boring but the class was a large lecture hall with a bed-headed professor who attempted to teach us the finer points of classical music. As we entered the lecture hall every Friday, we had a quiz. 
And the quiz consisted of this, and this will date me, but the professor had a record player that he used to take and put the big record on it and drop the needle. And when he dropped the needle, he would let the needle and the record play for like a minute or two. And then after that, he picked up the needle and we were to identify the composer of that particular piece of music. Well, in the large lecture hall, the chatter of those people who were cheating almost prohibited you from actually hearing the music that was being played. And I learned two very worthless lessons in my time in exploring music. The first was that if you're willing to cheat, you could improve your grade because you just had to collaborate with the people around you who actually knew something about music and they would inform you as to who the composer was. I chose not to cheat. Second worthless lesson that I learned was, well, at least it's worthless as far as real life and real eternity matters, and that is that if you showed up for class, if all you did was show up for class, you were guaranteed to get a C. Those are the only two things I learned in exploring music, unfortunately. Uh, except for the, some names of some uh, famous composers like Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff and those kinds of things, but I couldn't tell you who plays what. I'm sorry. I'm musically challenged. But I appreciate it. I just don't understand it. This morning, we're going to be in class. And our instructor is not a bedheaded professor, but he's a wise sage of the Old Testament. In the school of prayer with Moses in the book of Psalms, Psalm 90, uh, we're going to learn a couple of important lessons that are really valuable for life, that really matter in life. And this morning, this glorious text of Psalm 90, which I invite you to open to, is a, is a magnificent contrast between God and His supremacy, man and His frailty. And it is Moses' quiet confidence in God alone as the steadfast hope and refuge of the righteous that invites those people who really don't care much about God to take a second look and inspires those of us who know God personally through faith in Jesus to, uh, I think, at least for me, it's been encouraging, uh, stimulates me to a deeper devotion to follow after him. And so in Psalm 90, Moses teaches us these two worship lessons worth learning related to prayer. I'm going to read the text. Beginning with the first one, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you did give birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust, and you say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight, or like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew toward evening. It fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain seven years, or if due to strength, 80 years. But their boast or their pride is but sorrow and labor. As soon as it is gone, 
for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and the fury according to the fear that's due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness or your steadfast love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let or trouble. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty or your, as the ESV says, your glorious power to their children. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and do confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, Lord, confirm the work of our hands or establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. Wow. Two lessons. The first lesson that I see in the text is that we we learn to approach God with humility. And there are two truths in this first section, verses 1 through 11, that inspire in humility as we, as we approach God in prayer. First of all, we, we see the supremacy of God that's magnified, that's highlighted for us through mentioning of two of his main attributes. Now, there are other attributes that are brought out in the text, but these are the two main ones that are focused on. And who better to teach us about the majesty and the glory of God than the guy who had seen it? Back in Exodus chapter 32, when Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock as the presence of God passed by, God said, you can't see my face, but you can see my behind, and that's going to be glorious enough for you. Now, that's a paraphrase. Okay, he didn't really say that. Then in Numbers chapter 12, we read that Moses was the one whom God spoke to face to face as a man. And so he speaks to us. Aged Moses understood the brevity and uncertainty of life. Probably at this time uh, that it was written, during the wilderness wanderings, he had seen the death of his sister Miriam and the death of his brother Aaron, and he was destined not to enter the promised land. He knew the brevity and uncertainty of life, but get this, he anchored his hope. His hope was anchored in the reality of God's powerful, personal, and permanent presence. God's powerful, personal, and permanent presence. See, we see God is powerful, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. The Hebrew form of the word that's translated Lord is Adonai. It has as its root strength, and it's used here so that he doesn't use the forbidden name of God or the name of God that would bring a curse upon you, the Tetragrammaton, which we'll get to later, but it is used here to refer to his strength. I want to take his name in vain. The root word means strong and is used of God always to refer to a superior. God is God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Also, that root word means strong, strong place. In fact, Moses uses this word in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27, and translates it refuge. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Psalms, you see that's kind of a repeated theme. In Psalm 57, we talked about God as our refuge. Uh, the cave of Adullam where he was, uh, David was taking refuge. Last week when Alan was talking in Psalm 137, he redeems our life from the pit. He, he is our refuge. And here, 
He is our, our refuge. Those who trust in God, is what Moses says, those who trust in God in all generations, in every generation, have in Him an eternally secure place of refuge. He's our refuge in the time of storm. He's our refuge when everything is going wrong. He's our refuge. Remember when you were a kid, or now if you, maybe you grew up, maybe you have had children, or you have children now, and there's a, a major thunderstorm, and it's like, whoosh, boom, and the lightning hits, and boom, what happens? When, when you're a kid, man, you run into mom and dad's room, or your children, they run into your room, and they're like, crawl under the covers, and oh, I'm scared, I'm scared. And then they are safe. And they just stop shuddering and shaking, and they're just like, it's cool. The God of the universe is that refuge for those who trust in him. He is our refuge. He is all-powerful, able to handle it. And his power is further attested in verse 2. He says, before the mountains were born, or you did give birth to the earth and the world. Who gave birth to the earth and the world? God did. He's the one who's in control. He is not only powerful, but he's eternal. Because he goes right in. It says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, how long is everlasting? That's a long time. From everlasting to everlasting, there never was a time when God was not. God has always existed. Okay? He's always existed. In fact, I want you to look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Don't turn there. I think we have a slide of it. If we don't, yeah, we do. I think, maybe not, it doesn't matter. In Exodus 3.14, Moses is going to go up to the children of Israel and lead them out of the promised land. And he says to God, he says, God, well, they're going to want to know who sent me. And Moses hears from God, God says, you tell them that I am hath sent you. That's the name, I am. What's interesting about that word is that it is a, a Hebrew verb. It is a perpetually present tense verb. It means he always was, he always is, and he always will be. I am hath sent you. I am the perpetually present God. Which is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 8 verse 58 when he said to the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. He is always present. Always present. When I was in seminary uh, taking a class on theology, one of the professors described eternity this way. He said that if you took a granite cube, 100 square miles cubed, and an eagle came once a year to sharpen its beak on the cube of granite, by the time the eagle had worn the granite cube to nothing, one moment would have passed from eternity. One moment would have passed for eternity. Marla and I moved to Urbandale in May. We bought a home last end of September, uh, beginning of October. Our home is a temporary residence. It's not permanent. God is permanent, and He is always with us. But those who are trusting in Christ as we shared yesterday at Dorothy's funeral, we have a building made from God in the heavens, eternal in the heavens. 
God is a refuge. Believers enjoy a secure dwelling place in relationship with God now. So it's not just future stuff. In fact, and I've said this before, eternal life begins the moment we trust Christ. It doesn't begin when we die. So we have an eternally secure dwelling place right now if we're trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we have an eternally present dwelling place in the actual visible manifest presence of God for eternity in glory. The question is, in your uncertainty, in my uncertainty, and in the difficulties that we face in life, do we look to God now as our eternally secure dwelling place? Is he my refuge? Are we living now and looking forward to the day when one day we will be with him in heaven for eternity and enjoy his presence as our eternally secure dwelling place? Or are we putting our hope or trust in other stuff? That's kind of a nebulous question, but you think about it. Oh yeah, we are. All of us are. Just assume it. You're putting your trust in other stuff. Okay? The question is what stuff or what people or what things that will pass away. All that is temporal will pass away is not eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. As we look at the power and the permanence of God, we get a glimpse of his majesty. And, and Moses sets the supremacy of God in stark contrast to the frailty of man in the next few verses. Verses 1 and 2 is his supremacy. Now we turn and look at his frailty in verses 3 through 11. And in stark contrast to his eternal power, we're seeing, we see in the text, he mentions three constant and compelling reminders that we're pretty frail people. He talks about us being temporal. He talks about us being sinful. He talks about us being vulnerable. We'll talk about temporal. We're temporal, which means we have a fixed limit of time in which we inhabit this planet. Verse 3 repeats a truth that we heard in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. So we're just a bunch of dust. Reconfigured to kind of look like something for a while, and then we go back to dust waiting for our resurrection body if we're trusting in Christ. But this is what he says. We're temporary. And God's eternity is emphasized again in contrast to our frailty in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or like a watch in the night. Now, a watch in the night is just a, a period of time, a short period of time, probably three hours, okay? Just a short watch in the night. So what is he saying here? A period of time which seems indefinite to us a thousand years. It's just a moment to God. And so we better not be like a smart aleck, like the, the guy who said, well, if, if, a thousand, if a moment is like a thousand years to God, then a penny must be like a million dollars to God. So I'm just going to ask God for a penny. And God said, I'll give you a penny in a minute. God's view of time is different than ours. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter picks up on this passage in Psalm 90. And he says, God is not slow concerning his promises to bring about the return of Jesus and the final judgment. No, but he's patient and long-suffering, allowing time to pass so that people can turn from their sin and trust in Christ and be saved. 
But neither Moses uh, nor Peter, you know, are, are saying that they're not redefining day. They're not saying that a day is equivalent to a thousand years, as some who would propose a day-age theory of creation would, would articulate. No, they're not redefining. What they're saying is that for God, time passes slowly compared to time passing very quickly for us. It goes fast for us. Verses 5 and 6 refer to our sinfulness even more, or temporariness. He says, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. They die. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. June 30th, 2018, we got 8 to 9, 10 inches of rain in an hour and a half. And most of us get a little better glimpse of what it means to be swept away. We know what stuff is that's swept away. If you walk along North Walnut Creek and you see, you see a lot of stuff that got swept away from somewhere and deposited somewhere else. It communicates a temporalness. Brevity. And the, the grass became green overnight. Now look outside. You know. Swept away and withered are just metaphors to give us a picture of our own mortality. That we're not very long on this earth. And Moses specifies it and gets real nitty-gritty in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. But here's what you have to boast about in your 70 or 80 years. Labor and sorrow. Life is hard and then you die. That's what Moses says. Oh, that's... That's great. Life is hard and then you die. You know, when you're 15 years old, 70 seems like an eternity, right? You're like, wow, 70 years old? I don't think I could ever live to be that long. I mean, when I was 13, I thought 25 was ancient. You know, I mean, I thought I'd be married, have a bunch of kids and all that stuff by 25, you know, when you're 13. Now, talk to somebody who's 70 or 80 years old and they'll tell you, Boom, it went by. Where did the time go? It just flew by. God understands these things. And he says we can just boast in, in this time. We are aging. Now, folks, getting old is, is not fun. Getting old is not flattering. It's tough. We are temporal. We're sinful. What's interesting to me is that Moses... I think, accentuates that the main evidence of our frailty is our depravity. Look at verses 7 through 9. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. Moses teaches that this is the, the sinfulness. In fact, I think in these verses, he's showing us not just our depravity, but he's not just saying that sinfulness, he's not just saying that we are to pray, but that it is our sinfulness that leads to the difficulty and the demise of our humanity. You look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, Paul says that for by sin, one man's sin entered into the world, 
and therefore all sin. By our choice and by our nature, we are sinners. So if you march down through the text in verse 7, we have been consumed by your anger. God's anger comes against our sin in verse 8. You have placed our iniquities before you. And as a result of His wrath and our sin, we experience difficulty. That is, you have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh, and death. Sin leads to difficulty and death. We're temporal beings. So look at verse 8. You see, you got your Bibles open, look at verse 8. Do we really believe we sin? That's kind of the issue. It's really at the crux of all of Christianity. It's at the crux of who we are. Do we really believe we sin? These verses, this verse tells us that nothing is hidden from God's eyes. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. All things are naked and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Isn't it interesting how, well, I shouldn't say that, I'm sorry. I think it's interesting that many of us treat God like children play hide-and-seek. We treat God like children treat us when they play hide-and-seek. Children play hide-and-seek? If they have their eyes covered, they think you can't see them. If we can't see God, we think He's clueless as to what we're doing. We think He's oblivious to our sin, but it says here our secret sins are ever in His presence. And it's our sin that leads to His wrath, and His wrath leads to our disappointment, our discouragement, and our death. Sin always leads to death. Sin leads to disease, which leads to death. Sin leads to disappointment in relationships, which leads to death. Sin leads to, ultimately, spiritual death. If you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ and His death alone as the payment for your sin, here's the deal. The only solution, the only cure for the death that you're destined to experience, not just physical death, but spiritual separation from God, is through His Son, through God. He's the only answer. Overcoming death is possible through faith in Christ. That's what Jesus told Mary and Martha. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives in, whoever believes in me and dies, will, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Okay? Kind of butchered that, but you get the idea. You have to believe in Jesus. Then you have freedom from sin and death. That's the wrath of God is poured out on sin. Believers... The challenge for us here is to recognize that we sin and to ask God, as we looked at in Psalm 19, forgive my hidden faults. Keep back your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me, Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. But I, I don't want my secret sins to get me, you know, uh, the punishment and, and judgment, not that I'm going to be condemned. And finally, he says we're vulnerable. Verse 11 is a powerful verse that it's been kind of one I've been mulling over Especially, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Do we understand who God is? You know, sometimes I read in the Bible and I'm going, you know, this guy Uzzah, he was walking along by the cart and they were moving the cart, transporting him on an ox cart, and the ox cart started to wobble and he reached out his hand to, to steady the ark so it didn't fall off the ox cart and God struck him dead. 
I go, wow. I mean, he was just helping out. He's kind of doing a good thing, right? No. Because God said the ark should not be carried on an ox cart. It should be carried on poles, and people should never touch the, the, the ark of the covenant. God is a holy and righteous God, and I think we have such a trivial perspective of God that we neglect to see how His fury and His wrath is justified according to the fear that is due you. See, the most important thing, as one sage put it, the most important thing about a person is what we think about God. If we have a diminished view of God, uh, a little view of God, then, hey, leads to disobedience, which leads to difficulty, which leads to death. But we have a high view of God. If we have a high view of God, it leads to reverence and obedience. How many of you uh, in here, you've heard of maybe the, the, the crocodile hunter, Steve Irwin? Uh, bless his heart. I got a picture of Steve and his uh, crew as they tried to capture after they actually had captured this alligator. Now, how many guys you got there? You got one alligator, right? How many people? Lots, right? Why? Because they had reverence and fear for the wrath that that thing could inflict upon them. We don't have that. We have cavalier approach to God. And so I look at this beginning of the text and I see what Moses articulates is the supremacy of God in contrast to the frailty of man, which leads to humility. And that humility is the proper perspective in which we approach God in prayer, which is the next section, verses 12 through 17. So we learn to understand and be in humility before God, approach Him in humility, and then we learn to ask for what's weighty. Perspective always informs practice. Three weighty requests that Moses makes because he understands God's supremacy and mankind's frailty. First, we ask to serve God wisely, verse 12. So teach us, this is a teach, teach us to number our days. Moses is not trying to count the number of his days. He's trying to make his days count. Okay. He wants his days to count for God. We have a short life, right? We have a great God. Let's don't waste it. Let's don't waste it. Don't burn it up doing stupid stuff. Teach us to number our days. I paraphrase it this way. In light of God's supremacy and our frailty, teach us to think soberly so that we will live each day godly. God's supremacy, our frailty, think soberly to live godly. Now what is the heart of wisdom? A heart of wisdom exhibits the character of God in all that we do and engages in the stuff that God thinks is important. Okay? In practically everyday life. So this is not a matter of vocation. It's not even a matter of location. So it doesn't matter what you do for a job. It doesn't matter how you make your living. It doesn't matter where you live. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what God calls us to is to give Him a heart of wisdom. To live each day 
in a godly manner and to live each day doing godly stuff. I think that. So it's dedication and devotion to God that Moses cries for. So here's my challenge in light of this verse, is to take some time this week and just ask God, you know, God, where in my life am I not really living rightly? Where am I not really living out the fruit of the Spirit of God in my life? And secondly, ask God to show us where I'm not doing the right stuff. Where am I maybe not doing the right stuff? Jim Elliott, missionary to the Aka Indians who died in 1955, has said this very famous statement, all that is not eternal is eternally obsolete. All that is not eternal is eternally obsolete. You know, sometimes we wear busy like a badge of honor that I think blinds us to the futility of what we're busy with. Well, how are you? Busy. Well, that's too bad. We wear it like a badge of honor. Instead of evaluating, what am I busy doing? Like that's some sort of mark of excellence. Now, sometimes it is. But sometimes it's an excuse for not living rightly and not doing the right things. Because we don't have sense enough to say no to stuff that's stupid. And I am guilty. Okay, I'm not pointing the finger at you, the finger's in the mirror. But let's think about it. I was driving the other night. It was 8.30 at night. Iowa State Fair started on Thursday, right? So we have the Iowa State Fair, and I got a commercial. 8.30 at night, and the people on the radio are saying, hey, it's not too late to come out to the Iowa State Fair. You know, there's people rolling in, rolling in. Thursday night, they got to work on Friday. What are they doing going to the State Fair? 8.30 at night. Okay, if you want to go to 8.30 at night, fine, that's good. You know, that's not necessarily bad, but I'm thinking, really? It's not wrong to go to the state fair. It's not wrong to go on vacation. It's not wrong to, you know, play ball. It's not wrong to do stuff if that stuff is done rightly and if it's for a kingdom purpose. My fear is that we're too busy doing stuff that really doesn't matter and is really not done in the right way. What are the eternal things? Love God and love your neighbor. You got a sheet in your, you got a little thing in your insert in your bullet in there, right? Okay. Love God and love your neighbor. That's Jesus summed it up, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Same we going, oh, hey, I've seen this before. Yeah, maybe you have, because I have a good friend of mine who's a pastor of a church in the in the area, and he put out uh, something like this too. And I was in a workshop with him one time, and he says, you know, this is one of those uh, um, case studies. You copy and steal everything, okay? So this is full disclosure. You know, this is not unique to us, but we've tweaked it and changed it. But here's the deal. Love God and love your neighbor. You know, my thing is, present to God a heart of wisdom. Do we spend time with God? Do we spend time listening to Him? How are we doing in loving our, our neighbors? How are we doing in loving our families? Are we taking the time that we need to, to spend with them and our children? Read it. 
put some of this stuff into practice. You know, my prayer is for us at Creekside Church is that this will be incarnated in our life. This is part of who we are. Because we care about people, because we know the wrath of God comes upon wicked people and we want people to turn from their sin and trust in Christ so that they have in Him an eternally secure refuge. Just like we do. I'm saying in the boardroom and in the break room, in the lunchroom, in your living room, I don't care if it's in the bathroom, we should shine our light for Jesus. I need to. You know, in your neighborhood, just take some of these things into it. I love this story that I read about a gal by the name of Liz Anderson. She's a believer in Christ, and many years ago, uh, she was working for U.S. Freightways, and she ended every phone conversation she had with, have a blessed day. Now, that's not too offensive. She could have lost her job over it, though, probably if somebody would have pushed her. But here's, here's what she said. She said, How can I, what kind of Christian can I call myself knowing that God gave his son for me and I'm going to worry about a job over him? Wow. We ask if we can serve God wisely. Secondly, we ask to experience God's grace powerfully and personally. I love the way Moses moves from his lament and his extolling of God and the, the wickedness of man and God's wrath and his, our temporalness. And then he says, hey, you know what? I want God to do something. I want God to help me to present a heart of wisdom to you. And secondly, I want you to show up and let us experience your grace. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord. Hey, we're out here wandering around the wilderness wondering where God went, but now show up, please. We need your help. We want your help. A humble plea for God to show up. And notice he says in verse 14, satisfy us. Satisfy us with your, ESV says, steadfast love. Your loving kindness. Your chesed in the Hebrew. Your loyal love. Satisfy us. I like what Alexander McLaren says. The only thing that will secure lifelong gladness is a heart satisfied with the experience of God's love heart satisfied with the experience of God's love. To know it personally, to know it tangibly, God's love. Our hearts are only satisfied fully in relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. That's what Paul said in Colossians 2, 9 and 10. In Him you have been made complete. In Christ you have been made complete. Where do we go? We, we look for other stuff. I love Psalm 143, verse 8. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. I was reading this morning and, and, uh, and praying, and I, I was going over this, and I said, yeah, Lord, let me hear your loving kindness. How can I hear unless I listen? I thought, okay, well, what have I listened to? Psalm. 13, verse 5, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has dealt bountifully with you. He has redeemed your life from the pit of hell and given you purpose and meaning that transcends everything that this world values. There's a reason. 
You taste your loving kindness. And it's most fully, the, the tasting of His loving kindness is most fully revealed in the death of His Son for our sins. And notice He goes on to say, make us glad. Well, that's pretty selfish. Yeah? Because we're His kids. Make us glad, and He repeats it twice. Make us glad. Make us glad. And gladness is not found in possessions. Power. Prestige. Popularity. But that's where we mostly go. It's found in Christ, as Augustine said. And I quoted this in, I think, my first magazine article in Urbandale Living. It says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's a hard lesson to learn, but that's what Moses is saying. We, we ask to serve God wisely. We ask for God to make His grace known to us personally and powerfully. And finally, we ask to see God work gloriously and meaningfully. Verses 16 and 17. Look at verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your, ESV says, glorious power to their children. God, we want to see you do something. I wrote in my Bible. God, do something big. God, do something big. Would you do something big? Could we see, you know, not just in a listening to the Word of God, but in a very visible, tangible way, could we see the manifest presence of God and we would see His grace poured out in a way that we maybe had never seen it before? Wow. Because Moses and these people have been wandering around the wilderness for a long time. They hadn't seen the, the power of God other than they ignored it through the giving of the manna, which got to be old hat, and they didn't like it very much. But God poured it out. He says, make it known. Moses wants to know God's steadfast love tangibly and that's the thing the qualities of the work that he is praying for are tangible first of all it's something that's visible and they see it happening they know what's going on God do something big I don't know about you I didn't move to Urbandale to stay on cruise control okay I want to see God do something in and through Creekside Church if you don't, I'm sorry. But this is what I'm praying. And this is what I'm asking you to pray. That God would do something big. That He would make His grace and pour out His work. That we would see it and our children would see it. For His glory. I mean, we got people going to Haiti. Praise God, that's a glorious work. We had a great Fourth of July outreach thing. Praise God, that's good work. We got a want is coming up. You don't want to see people come to know Jesus. Most people, I read this is an old statistic, but 69% of everyone who comes to faith in Christ does so before the age of 18. There's a case for working in Awanas. And we need help because we have a vision. I have a vision that we would be reaching people in the Des Moines area for the sake of Jesus. There's a lot of them who don't know him. And we know him. And we have been gloriously blessed. And we're not supposed to get all we can, can all we get, and sit on the can. We're supposed to open the can. So that's what I'm praying. 
Would you dare to pray that 50 people, 100 people, would come to personal faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Creekside Church in the next year? I mean, that's like, whoa. We can't do that. That's the point. That's the point. He prays for a work that's meaningful. Verse 17. And let your favor of the Lord our God be upon us. I don't know about you. When I read that, I just kind of go, yeah. Yeah. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. Why? To establish our work. To make our work not just tangible, but meaningful. That it actually lasts. That it's actually of purpose and value. That it has an eternal impact for Christ. And what could be more meaningful than what's stated in our mission statement? Leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that lasts. Leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. I was really struggling whether to preach this passage or Psalm 67. Because Psalm 67 is the fruition of, or the, the, the uh, I mean, not, I shouldn't say the, but it is a companion idea. Lord, be gracious to us and bless us and make your face shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all peoples. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. What's the psalmist praying? Bless us. Why? So that all may know that Jesus Christ is King. That they may know the Lord of the universe in a personal way. They can be rescued from the pit of darkness and the destiny that they have in their life as fallen people to die in an eternity apart from God. That's what I want to pray. God, be gracious to us and bless us that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all people. Isn't that the mission statement? Leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, I, get, I sign up for that. Church softball team, yeah, okay. Maybe. Be a water boy. Knees are bad, can't do much else. But praying that the God of the universe would bless us and make his face, isn't that what, I think that's what he's praying here. Show your favor to us. And the supremacy of God highlights our frailty. And points to God's sufficiency through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only source of eternal security and refuge. In His wrath, He punishes sin. And the sin that we commit leads to death, destruction, and our demise. But because of His grace, He made possible a life now that has purpose and meaning. That we can inhabit that refuge, that eternal dwelling place through a relationship with God, through His Son Jesus now, and one day in glory we'll enjoy it forever. And as we celebrate communion, we only remember the grace that He poured out so that those of you who are here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is an invitation to seek refuge in the only source of refuge.
And those of us who know Jesus, there is an invitation for us to rejoice that we are part of something that is always, always, always going to last. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to do something big among us. Oh, Lord, may we come with all humility. May we understand your absolute supremacy. May we be awestruck and dumbstruck by our own frailty. We are temporary, mortal beings. We are sinful and wicked and deserving of judgment. And we are very, very vulnerable to a God who is holy and righteous. And yet we pray in all humility that you would use us, that we might serve you wisely. We pray that we might experience your grace, first of all, in rescuing us from the pit of hell and delivering us from darkness through faith in your Son. And then as those who have been delivered, we pray. We pray, dear God, that you would show us your grace in tangible ways, that you would show it in meaningful ways, that the work we do would last for eternity, that lives would be changed for the glory of God and the gain of your kingdom. And as we take these elements, we pray, thanking you for the privilege of participating in this great work to which you have called us for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name.